And I think as an entrepreneur, one of the real, um, you know, blessings you, or, or curses <laughs> you have is that you, you have these hunches, right? You have these ideas that pop into your mind and that's just entrepreneurship, right? It, it might not be that mm-hmm. you're a business. It could be like a song you're playing around with if you're, if you're a songwriter or, or anything else. And so um, try and tinker with it uh, on the side for a long time um, before that kind of like emerges as its own thing. Um, because otherwise there might be too much at stake and the, the weight of the business, like, you know, your need to support yourself and your family, for example, will cause it to, uh, to collapse. You, you know, you go crazy, you run yourself ragged trying to do fundraising. Mm. So I think if, if at all possible, side hustle is the way to go because there seems to be a natural incubation period for businesses that is not a month or two, but is more like a year or two. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's uh, grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we focus on helping startups and small businesses with their patents, trademarks, and other things for their business. If you need anybody to help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. Always happy to help. Now today we have another great guest on the podcast, um, Brooke, and I'm going to say Shafe, is that Close? We normally say Schaff, but uh, we get Schaff, Schaff, and Schaff. <laughs> Schaff or Schaff, whichever. Uh, I'll go with. I'll go. I'll try and go. Remember to go with Schaff. So, as a quick introduction to, to Brooke, so got a degree. I think it was in German. Uh, got a scholarship to, uh, in Germany or in Germany in high school. Is that right? High school, yeah. All right. And then out of college, went to work for Zappos.com, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, and uh, kind of took to or uh, liked uh, affiliate marketing, did that for quite a while, um, did a few different kind of in-house jobs, I think was recruited over to Shoes.com, which I hadn't heard of, so I don't, I don't know, I, we'll have to get into whether Shoes.com is still around, but it was a, a different experience, I'm going from Zappos to Shoes.com, and we'll talk a little bit about that got recruited over to, I think it was a car research company for a bit of time. And then uncle was also in um, politics. And so ran an agency uh, for a bit there. And then after that kind of brings it up to where you're at today of running your own business. And we'll talk a little bit about what that is as well. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, Brooke. Thanks, Devin. Glad to be here. So, so I gave that high level um, cursory overview, but let's dive into a little bit of your journey. So take us a little bit back to earning a, earning your German degree and how, how things got kicked off from there. Yeah. So German degree, not uh, the most professionally applicable degree for, for most people, as it turns out, mm. a lot of fun. I, you know, I love that life with the mind stuff. Uh, definitely would have done, you know, accounting is, uh, or something similar as a supplement where I do college over again. Mm. So uh, still had a couple of job prospects right out of college, one of which was at a very young Zappos.com. My brother uh, worked at another company in the same incubator, uh, which the famous and late um, uh, Tony Shea had started uh, after a real successful exit of a company called Link Exchange to Microsoft. Mm. And um, Zappos almost failed uh, and uh, it didn't. And it became a huge success story later acquired by let me Amazon. just jump one quick question. So you get a German degree. So how did you get into Zappos? Because I maybe, I don't know, Zappos may have a, Germ, a branch in Germany or have that, but I wouldn't imagine that that necessarily right out of the chute uh, lines up with it. So how did you kind of make the transition from a German degree to being an affiliate or going in sales with Zappos? Yeah, no connection. It's a standard humanities <laughs> thing. You know, you go to college, you put your resume out there and I had two uh, notable job offers. One, I went to school at Berkeley, so it was it was near San Francisco. 
One was in Southern California with an industrial supply company that was actually pretty, pretty cool. And then it was Zappos. My friend said, hey, you should do the dot-com thing. They're all going to die soon because this was after the crash. Mm. And um, it, it ended up being a tremendous journey. You know, it, it really got me into affiliate marketing. So I've made my, my whole career because they were just hiring for a, for a marketing coordinator, you know. So I was, mm. you know, one of many candidates for that. Got the job, did really well with it manage their affiliate program, manage the pay-per-click program, uh, all sorts of other stuff like magazines and um, review proposals for skywriting and stuff like that. Hmm. No, I think that uh, sounds like, you know, not a, a large connection, but definitely a great opportunity. So you were at Zappos. Now, how long, how long were you at Zappos for? About two years. So the recruiter came a call and because by that point, I kind of made a name for myself in the industry. The program was really successful. And Zappos went from being this underdog to really being the dominant uh, online shoe company, a position that they held uh, through the acquisition by Amazon, I, I think it's fair to say. Mm. So, you know, I thought I was hot stuff, uh, went over to shoes.com. It was funny you said you've never heard of them. There's a reason for that. That, that was <laughs> a, a very, um, very distant second by comparison to Zappos. Uh, mm -hmm. It was real interesting, though, because that company came out of the shoe industry, like the guys, like there was a, a partnership between a couple companies, Famous Footwear, uh, his parent company, Brown Shoe, and then these guys in LA. And they shoes is like real interesting. It's like a very strong community. It's, it's different than other kinds of retail. You know, buyers go from like the department, department store to the brand and, and back and forth. And so they thought that they were going to blow Zappos out of the water when they caught up to like these, these tech whiz kids. And uh, that was not to happen because Zappos just really figured out what was critical for online commerce, you know, your conversion rate, your inventory, your selection, and a lot more subtle stuff too, like search, uh, speed of image delivery. Uh, mm. Shoes was not, not tuned into that stuff at all. Did not have the uh, technical wherewithal to uh, really compete. So that personally, uh, professionally, that was really humbling for me. No, so, and one question, you kind of hit on it, and it kind of comes up with that. So, you like Zappos, you're doing well at it. When you switched over to shoes, was it, hey, it's a better paying position, or I think I can have more impact, or I'm looking to change, or, you know, if you're at Zappos and things are going well, what made you decide to change? Man, great question. Really long answer. Uh, you know, the short is, I think, personally, I've kind of gotten what I was going to get out. I was very mm -hmm. flattered to have that offer. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, so I think of my first company a couple of years was, was probably a good run. I think in retrospect, even though uh, I, I left a really hot company for a really cold company, um, I, I, I had a lot of um, uh, maturing to do and I got some of that maturation through that process. So mm -hmm. it, it kind of came at the right time and um, ended up being something good for me in my life in an unexpected way. Okay. No, definitely makes sense. And, you know, sometimes it, whether it's, you know, I don't know, it's a peak or plateau, but you know, if you're anything like me, I, I love, you know, the startup small business and I like to have the challenge. And so sometimes you've been with the company for a long enough period of time, it starts to get stale, not because the company's stale, but you're just saying, Hey, I'm looking for that next and exciting challenge and something fun to do. So, so you go over to shoes.com and I did look up on the, just as we were talking, looks like shoes.com still has their URL. So technically they're still alive. Well, um, they went through, they went through a couple bankruptcies though um, so it's it's been a tough go for them and all the original people are long long gone huh. so, so no so hey that that makes more sense or makes even more sense so now you got went to shoes.com how long did you, you stay there for that was a couple of years too and then uh, the car research company Edmonds uh, came a call and okay 
So, and, and I, I'll assume put words in your mouth, but you know, it sounds like where you got to shoes.com, it was humbling. It wasn't the same experience as Zappos and wasn't going the way you wanted Then when uh, the, the car research company came along, you're saying, Hey, this is a good opportunity to, to pivot or to adjust or go in a new direction. You know, honestly, I probably should have left sooner. Um, and I probably would have been in shoes for a while longer. I had somebody not called. Mm. Uh, but that was, it ended up being fantastic. I mean, that was a great company. I love my boss. Um, uh, the program was wildly successful, like super profitable again, and um, short lived though, because then, then my uncle called and said, Hey, I'm, I'm running for office. Uh, why don't you come work on my campaign? Which mm. was a weird uh, career detour for me. So, and, you know, and that sounds, so, I mean, how did, because I get the first three, right? You're kind of in sales, you're in marketing, you're in doing affiliate type work, you know, for Bolt or for Zappos and then for um, shoes.com and then for the car research company. Um, but now, you know, how was it to make that transition and switch to go to politics? Was it fun and exciting and something new and, or was it, Hey, I'm out of my depth and this isn't fun and I want to go back or kind of, how did you make that update or, or that? How was that transition into politics? Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> it was, it was uh, wonderful and it was awful. Uh, you know, I'd always been interested in politics, never been close to politics. And when you hear horror stories, it, th- there's reasons for it. I mean, there's a lot of true believers in politics and, and I don't, it doesn't really matter um, what, what party or, or affiliation you have. Sure. There's some shady people, there's some hustlers, there's some hucksters. Um, so it's real thrilling. You know, it was a gubernatorial race. So it was, it was, it was mm. prominent and he was the um, party candidate. Um, and then it's real tough because, you know, the, there's there's fair criticism and there's outright lies. And it's real interesting to kind of see that up close and realize, too, what um, actually doesn't get into the media or at least didn't back then. Like it was there's a lot of stuff that gets filtered, hmm. you know, a lot of real wacky, uh, crazy stuff. Maybe that stuff no longer gets filtered uh, with the Internet today. But um, <laughs> it certainly taught me I did not want to make politics a career. I, I will tell you that. Hmm. So now how, no, just out of curiosity. And so did the, the candidate, your uncle that you were helping with, did he win? Did he lose? Where did the, where did the, the campaign go? Yeah. So he lost, which oh, was right. a real rough disappointment and led, you know, to the next phase. So my brother worked on that campaign too. So it was kind of funny. We re- reconnected because he got me my first job lead and then we were both unemployed together uh, in another state. And, you know, there were kind of job offers floating around out there, but we said, well, why don't we try our own thing? And he was a programmer. He had, that was his background. I wasn't going to learn programming. So we, we started uh, doing an affiliate management agency. Mm. Uh, and that was still relatively early for, for those days. There were a couple of shops that were established. Um, there, were, there was nowhere near the proliferation of hundreds of agencies that there are today. Mm. So we, that was 2006. We became one of the big agencies and then uh, sold that um, a few years ago. So, so now you, you get that going, you do that. And now that kind of brings us up to, I think, where you're at today, which is um, with FMTC, which is, is kind of where you're, is that where then you transitioned, transitioned to, to FMTC? Is that right? Yeah. So it was two, I I'd, I'd co-founded two successful companies hmm. um, of, of note here. One was uh, the agency and the second was FMTC. And so FMTC, at the end of 2007, uh, one of our business uh, colleagues uh, who had a coupon site said, hey, there's more competition coming in every day. I can't stop the competition, but I know from personal experience how hard it is to handle all this data. And I can sell, you know, if they're going to mine for gold, 
uh, they'll stake their claim, but I know that they need pickaxes, you know, I can sell them the data, which is a very forward thinking move. So we formed a company together uh, for me to coupon, mm. a reference to an old uh, Conan O'Brien skit for, for older members of your audience. And uh, the business was totally successful um, in its, its first year. And then I stepped away from that business running the agency and came back to it. Uh, we had bought that partner out along the way, I think in 2013. And then when my brother and I sold the agency we had together, uh, he also exited. I bought him out of FMTC, which I've since been running. Hmm. So now, so you bought him out. So you started with, with partners. Now are you the, the sole owner? Did, you know, you run into everything on your own? Yes, I'm the sole owner now. Okay. So now how is that as a trend? Because I've, I've been in both situations where I've had partners that are terrible. I've had partners that are great in other business. I'm saying, I don't want a partner. I just want to do it on my own so I can make the decisions as I, I you know, as, as it makes sense to me. So as you transition from having a partner that you could pull, you know, a bit of uh, resources or balance things off of to going out on your own, was it a good transition? Did you like it? Did you miss a partnership or kind of have that go? Yeah, we, so we had a fair number of conflicts along the way, which I've, I've mm. since learned is really inevitable and it's exacerbated by personality conflicts. You know, if you're the adventurous guy and I'm the, the conservative guy, you know, that'll be an inherent conflict. And those, those can be good because they can, you know, reveal the true nature of things. Um, and you might avoid some pitfalls through, through good discussion. Um, and so there's definitely inherent positives and negatives to partnerships. You know, it can be lonely without a partner, but when you have the partner, um, there can be conflicts. Uh, so I don't think there's like, you know, one best way to, to do it. Um, I would definitely suss out all the likely conflicts before entering a, a future partnership, uh, which, you know, you kind of do if, if you get married um, and, and um, it's not entirely dissimilar from a, from a business relationship. You have to have, know what those are, have a reconciliation mechanism for them. And then when you have that, you know, kind of abide by the rules that you've agreed to a lot of stuff that's in the operating agreement, you know, under what terms will we sell, um, who has operating control, you know, are you an owner? Are you also an operator? So all that stuff kind of came up as conflicts uh, with us in, in both companies. No. And I, and I think that to your point, I think to some degree partners is inevitable. You're going to have disagreement, but I think that one is, and I think you kind of hit on is having a clear decision-making, what the structure is, how you resolve conflicts, how you make final decisions, what that looks like. And I think also too, is some, sometimes depending on, it can be as much my, and I'm, I'm as guilty of any personalities. Sometimes you just like to, you know, you work, some people work well with partners and others don't, and you have to be able to be, you know, self-realistic in which way, where, where your personality is and how you fit. So now as that kind of brings us up to where you're at today, kind of now looking to six to 12 months in the future, kind of what do you see is, where do you see things headed or what are the next steps? Well, we're pretty excited. So FMDC is a very, um, it's a B2B company. So it's not like uh, gripping in the sense that, you know, like you might be really into Tesla or, you know, electronics products or video games. Uh, but affiliate is really growing and, and affiliate is super strong as an industry stuff grew by double and triple digits last year, along with uh, a lot of other e-commerce stuff. Mm. Uh, so affiliate, you know, if you ever see a link to uh, Amazon, for example, it's probably an affiliate link online and that mm. includes all these review sites, uh, it includes coupon sites, it includes reward sites. Uh, the latter two are our kind of core customers. We're B2B purveyor of data, of, of deal and uh, product data to enterprise sites. And so the thing that we're really excited about, um, you know, we got our product roadmap and we're cranking away, um, uh, you know, we pay out old technical debt because the company's been around a long time and we're building new stuff. 
and affiliate is keeps growing. And the thing that we see is that more and more links are going to be monetized through affiliate in the future. So for example, um, the headlines just this week came out that uh, Shopify is building a, a content commerce. A content commerce basically means links to products uh, through mm -hmm. affiliate links. So you link and then the merchant pays, whoever posted that, like an influencer or a coupon site or whoever, a commission. Mm -hmm. And um, Shopify is building this in, and our first publisher is going to be TikTok. So, you know, this is going to be major volume stuff. Mm. And um, Instagram is also building out an affiliate network. So, the idea is that if you send somebody a link, that link is valuable. And if it's valuable, you know, the, the person who's providing the link and, and they're with the traffic should probably be compensated in some way. Now, influencers might charge, you know, for promotional packages. You know, you got a sponsor for this podcast. Um, there's, you know, it's traditional advertising, but affiliate is a very elegant way to advertise because the opportunity cost is very low, right? Somebody says, hey, mm. um, Devin, I want to be on your podcast. And you say, well, hey, here's the price. And they say, well, I don't know. You know, that's a lot of money. Would it really be worth it? Would it be worth it over time? I don't know. But if it's an affiliate link, if it's an affiliate deal, it's like, great, no worries. And then on your side as the um, publisher, if it works out, like, you know, your compensation is uh, your remuneration uh, grows with value driven. So, you know, it's not the perfect model for everything. No model is, but it is, again, very elegant. And um, I think you're going to see more and more and more of it. And affiliate used to, there's there kind of a taboo for a long time where publishers didn't want to be affiliates. It was sort of seen as, as I guess you might say, low rent. But mm. the big boys have really gotten into the game. So, for example, uh, BuzzFeed, uh, which owns a bunch of properties, a major uh, monetizer through affiliate as a publisher. And, mm. and affiliate and publisher are roughly synonymous. Uh, New York Times bought Wirecutter, which is uh, product recommendations. They have affiliate links, uh, Consumer Reports, which is a longstanding, you know, uh, kind of the, the OG affiliate, uh, sorry, not affiliate, the OG like product review site. Mm. They, they monetize through affiliate. So I think you're going to see this more and more and more. And um, FMTC is a big supplier of that data to these sites, especially, of course, the coupon data, which mm. also can be a mechanism for tracking. Um, so we, you know, we see um, blue skies and, and blue ocean. Oh, sounds like an exciting, uh, exciting path forward and a lot of opportunity uh, that lies ahead. So, well, that kind of now takes us a bit into the future. It's a, a good point to transition. So I always have two questions I ask at the end of each podcast. So we'll jump to those now. So the first question I ask is along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? It's hard to pick just one. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking about this from, from, from our pre-call and I think the one that I would say is when I took over FMDC, uh, the old executive team had built out basically an influencer marketplace. And it was not at all a bad idea. There was a unique twist where they could implement uh, affiliate links because, you know, the company already distributed affiliate links mm. plus um, uh, sort of like paid placements. So sort of basically a hybrid comp scheme. And, uh, you know, great idea. A lot of effort went into it. Just a failure. Uh, generated hardly any income. And when I came back in, there was this one developer um, uh, who kept working to kind of fix it. And he kept, and I was trying to, I was going to try and pivot the product. And basically uh, it took me seven months to realize I had a failure on my hands and I finally cut my losses. But it was a very painful moment of realization. And it's a very common thing for an entrepreneur. Like, you know, you're somehow something else uh, comes along. You feel like it's really close to, to being successful. Usually it's making money. It could be another form of success. But it's really bleeding you. You know, it's bleeding money because uh, you got these these resources you're paying for. Uh, it's bleeding your time. It's bleeding your energy. It's bleeding your attention. And you just got to have a moment of truth where you're like, "Look, this is not working out. 
I can never recover what's been invested in it. It's a sunk cost. It's a sunk loss. You got to move on. So that's a perennial lesson um, uh, message for, I think, any entrepreneur. Mm. No, I def- definitely think that's a good lesson to learn. And, you know, one of the things that is always hard with sunk costs, you know, theoretically, it always sounds great. Okay, you know, sunk costs, if it's not making money, if I'm not there, then I'm, you know, I need to just walk away. But when you're in the middle of things and you're actually having to say, I've invested all this time, money and effort, and it's, you know, how do I walk away? It's always a lot harder to do. And even if it's the right decision, it doesn't always, li- it doesn't always ma- make it any easier. So I definitely get that's a, a mistake to be made, but also a lesson to learn. So now, as you go to the second question, which is if you're talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? You know, one that comes out a lot, I think, is, is do the side hustle thing. You know, so talk to a lot of people about it. You know, don't be afraid. Typically, don't be afraid of your idea getting stolen because if somebody could really steal your idea just by hearing it, then, you know, the idea probably only has so, so much, right? There's, there's got to be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears going into it. And then uh, after you talk to people, see if you can kind of tinker around with it um, without kind of going for a full investment thing. Um, mm. There was a really good letter actually from Amazon a couple of years ago in a shareholder thing. And he talked about the importance of process, which is like, you know, what Amazon is really known for. Like their logistics are super dialed in uh, among many, many other processes. But there's also this, this hunch that you get and this tinkering. And I think as an entrepreneur, one of the real, um, you know, blessings you or, or curses you have is that you you have these hunches right you have these ideas that pop into your mind and that's just entrepreneurship right it, it might not be mm-hmm. that you're a business it could be like a song you're playing around with if you're if you're a songwriter or, or anything else and so um, try and tinker with it uh, on the side for a long time um, before that kind of like emerges as its own thing um, mm-hmm. because otherwise there might be too much at stake and the, the weight of the business, like, you know, your need to support yourself and your family, for example, will cause it to, uh, to collapse. You, go, you know, you go crazy, you run yourself ragged trying to do fundraising. Mm. So I think if, if at all possible, side hustle is the way to go because there seems to be a natural incubation period for businesses that is not a month or two, but is more like a year or two. Mm. No, and I think that that definitely makes sense. You know, it's always hard sometimes because you're saying, oh, if I do a side hustle, I'm never going to have enough time and it's never going to take off. And yet by the same time, you know, you, you know, there's an interesting show. I think it's on Discovery and I watched it not too long ago. It's called I Quit. And it was a TV series. It was basically all the people that, hey, we have kind of a side hustle and a side business and I'm going to quit my job and go all in. And some of them, it was successful and they did well. And others that they basically prematurely dived in and didn't really work out and partnerships fell apart or didn't have the revenue and everything else. And so I think that, you know, as I think that there's a lot of merit for starting things out as a side hustle, making sure that, you know, the old, you know, the cliche is, you know, the boat's close enough to the dock that you can step in or, you know, jump over. But if it's too far away, all you're going to do is fall in the water. So I think that there's definitely doing that side hustle for a period of time that allows you to let the business mature, figure it out. And still, you can still put in a ton of time and effort on the side hustle if you want it to be successful, but allow it to mature. I think it's a great piece of advice. That's a great point. Yeah. You're not just testing the idea. You're testing your, like your supply chain, your relationship, stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. So, well, now as we start to wrap, as we start to wrap up, um, if people want to reach out to, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to learn more about affiliate marketing, they want to be an investor, they want to be an employee, they want to be a partner, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you or find out more? Uh, Definitely LinkedIn. So Brooke Schaff on LinkedIn, easy to find, easy to connect with me uh, there. 
Oh, awesome. Well, perfect. And just as a reminder to people, we, we do have the extra bonus question uh, that we're going to talk a little bit about intellectual property after the normal podcast. So if you want to hear that question and answer, stay tuned. But for all the rest of you that are uh, just uh, tuning into the normal episode, um, appreciate coming on the podcast, Brooke. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. For all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell, um, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com, apply to be on the podcast. Always love to share your journey. Um, also, if you're a listener, two more things. One, make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so new people can find us. And if you ever need help with your patents, trademarks, or anything else, just go to strategymeeting.com, um, sign up to grab some time with us. So now as we jump over, we get a, we always get a flip. I always get to be the one during the normal episode that gets asked the questions and dive into things and that. And now we get to flip the tables a bit and you get to ask me what, uh, ask me a question, which is what is your number one intellectual property question that you have? Yeah, great. So my question is when is a patent uh, practicable and worthwhile? Uh, Sorry, a process patent, I mean, in particular. Yeah. Yeah. First, defining what a process patent can be, because that can be a few different things, because at least to me, you know, in the sense that a process could be, you know, it could be a business method. And if you're trying to patent a business method, I'm just going to tell you now, probably abandon all hope, because while they haven't completely killed them, about 95, 99% of them are not, just don't make it through. It's very hard. So if you're thinking of a process as a business method, you're probably better to just not go after in the first place and just, or go, or just go after or compete other ways. Now, there's also a couple other things. A process could also be a method of doing things. Let's say a lot of software that almost falls under a process or, you know, how does the software go about making determinations, getting data, analyzing it, storing it, providing notifications and everything else. And that can be a process. Or there's one more, and then I'll get into your question, which is kind of more of a, what's what I would call a method of manufacturing, how you actually, not what you make, but how you make it. So maybe I'm making a widget and it has to be heated to a certain amount of temperature. It has to cool for so or so long a period of time. It has to be a certain material. It has to have all these steps of a process. So there's a few different when we when you kind of refer to process patents, what that can mean. Now, I would say kind of the question of when do you go after them, it a little bit depends on a business by business and also the industry. So kind of give you a couple gating features. One is U.S. is a first-to-file system. So first person to file is the presumptive inventor of an invention. So if you're going to put in a lot of time, money, and effort, blood, sweat, and tears, then you need to say, okay, this is a first-to-file. Is it a competitive marketplace? Meaning, is there a lot of other smart people that are trying to solve this problem or innovate in this area? If so, you're probably going to want to move up the timeline a bit more because other people, if they file on, if a lot of people are racing to, for the solution or racing to innovate and they file on it first, they can box you out of not being able to pursue your own idea or your invention because they filed before you. The other kind of gating feature is um, what is, or anytime you put thing out in the, anything out in the public, there's a rule with patent law that you have a one-year time clock from which you can file a patent. So that can mean you put it up on a website, you can um, put it up for a presentation, go to trade shows, put it out to investors, start offering your product for sale. Anytime you initially put down the public, you have a kind of a one-year time clock ticking on that. So those are a couple kind of gating features. Earliest, you know, you don't want to make or watch your competition, know your industry as to how competitive it is. Keep that one one year time clock in, in the in the back of your mind. One other gating feature I would think of is when when is the earliest, not necessarily when should you, but what is the earliest you even could start, which is 
what we would call you have to have your invention or your or your idea far enough along that we call what's called conceptual reduction of practice which that basically means can you explain your idea or your invention to a level of detail that somebody else in the industry say okay i get it and i could reproduce it i don't have to have a prototype i don't have to actually made it but i have to be able to explain it to that level of detail so with all of that said and now i'm going to answer the short answer to your question where I really look at it is where is the value to your business and how, what is the trajectory for your business? Meaning look at that business plan is, are you a brand company? And really what you want to do is build the world's best brand. You want to be the next Coke or Pepsi or M&Ms or Disney or whatever it is, then you shouldn't go after a patent because you're really a brand company, not a product company. On the other hand, if you're saying, Hey, we're going to do two years of R and D, we're going to do a lot of development and put in a lot of research and put in a lot of investment to bring a great new product to market. And you say a lot of our value is kind of that intangible. We can't, you know, it's all of that time and effort and time on tasks and research and that then you're going to want to say, we want to get a patent on it to protect it so we can have that as an asset. So, that was a bit of a rambling because there's not a one size fits all answer, but I would start to look and say, what's the value of our business when, and then what, you know, what is, how much would it hurt of somebody to copy? And then kind of look at those. Can you, are you far enough along? You can explain it. And then when should you need to protect it by? So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that's at least my initial thoughts on it. So with that, Oh, go ahead. Well, I had a follow-up question if that's all right. Sure. Yep, Absolutely. So if the patent is largely for around a sort of like defensive concerns, mm. then does prior art work if, if you know, you're not first to file, like if somebody else files in like two years or something, and then I don't know, we catch wind of this or something and they say, well, hey, we have a patent on this now. Can we say, well, wait a minute, we've been doing this for, for 10 years or five years or however long. So, yeah. So, I'll, and I'll jump to your question. Two things. One is there's kind of two reasons why primarily why you'd get a patent one is for defensive purposes saying hey we want to if you know somebody if if somebody else were to come along we want to be able to defend what we're doing so that they can mm -hmm. stop us from doing it or they can't knock us off and we can have some protection there the other one is going to be more for an investment as an asset almost to the company so is it an asset that you can get investors on or you can realize you know value to it you can have something proprietary so if you're going to merger acquisition sales um, something of that nature that you can have that asset that increases your value now to your question you know, if somebody, if you were to be doing it before them, let's say you were five years out, some, you never filed a patent, somebody came along, did the exact same thing you were doing, filed a patent first. Yeah, theoretically, you could go and you could get in and, you know, you could say your patent is invalid because one of the requirements of a patent is you have to be, it has to be novel, means nobody else has previously invented it. Well, if you were doing it five years ago, you already invented it. So you could go out, you could challenge their patent, you could get it canceled or otherwise invalidated, and you could do it. Now, I wouldn't recommend that in the sense it's a lot more expensive because you're going to have to go through court, you're going to have to prove you're doing it first, you're going to have to make sure you have proper documentation to show the, the aspects of the invention or, or you invented that you were first and how long ago it was and everything else. So it can be more difficult and costly. But if you get yourself in that situation where you didn't file it, it certainly is an option that you, if you can prove that you were the first to invent it and they were to come along after, you could do it. So it's a harder fight then. It is. It's a harder fight. It's more difficult to prove and it's more expensive. So it's an option. It's just not one that if you can avoid that, I would recommend. That makes sense. 
Awesome. Well, we'll we'll wrap up for there, and for all, and uh, for anybody else, if you or anybody else has any other questions about intellectual property, again, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com, um, sign up to for a time to chat, and always happy to to go over things with you. And with that, thank you again, Brooke, for coming on the podcast. It was it was a fun, it was a pleasure, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks, Devin. I appreciate you having me.